Hey guys, hello and welcome uh, to the Construction Corner Podcast. I'm doing this intro for Kyle Campbell, our uh, illustrious guest this week on the Construction Corner Podcast post-mortem. So I have more to say about Kyle than uh, I would have just going into it. So Kyle Campbell is a director at Hodling Insurance Services, H-O-T-A-L-I-N-G, insurance services, working with clients across the country in the construction industry. His firm is a risk management family office for business owners and high net worth families, providing insurance services across all lines of insurance. And this is super important for today's conversation, which we'll get into in a minute. And I'll give you kind of a debrief here as we go into it. Cal's passion for helping business owners in the construction industry stems from Growing up in his family's heavy industrial contracting business, which is now in its 76-year business, which is awesome. I mean, that, that's a long-standing uh, generational business. His 10-plus years of experience helping to run that company combined with his experience as a child watching his family be torn apart by lack of succession planning gives him the perspective that few, if any, insurance working, agents working in the construction industry can provide as he has been in your shoes. Coming into this conversation, uh, I didn't know what to think, right? I have an insurance guy to talk about this stuff, and it, it went in a fantastic direction, right? All talking about uh, succession planning, insurance, coverage, everything that you need as a construction company to be uh, not only successful, to, but to be covered in case anything uh, bad happens, right? That worst case uh, scenario, that buyout, uh, change of life right you get a, a divorce a uh, death in the family whatever might occur having coverages and being completely taken care of in anything that might happen is really really important so this conversation with Kyle is a fantastic one and guys if you like this episode and others like it with having our fantastic guests on Please share the show. We appreciate you all for listening, and uh, thank you so much. And I'll let uh, all of us take it away. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Construction Corner Podcast. I'm Dylan. I'm your host, joined by my blue-collar badass, uh, Matt. How are you, man? Doing good, Dylan. Uh, we don't have as much snow here as you do, so we can we can roam about freely still, which is which is nice. It looks to me uh, from your background there, you're still covered up yeah this is a uh, not ideal uh <laughs> setup for a podcast or anything like that but uh we get it done yeah we've got probably six and a half seven feet of snow in the last couple weeks uh got another couple inches here this morning and uh now we're supposed to get rain for the next uh few days or here later this week and whatnot so we switched from the Polar Express to the Pineapple Express, um, or whatever that matters or <laughs> counts for. And uh, from there, we're going to be um, just drenched. So it'll be an interesting next uh, week or two. Oh, I bet. I bet it gets pretty icy and nasty for a little bit there. Yeah, it should warm up, but... Uh, yeah i mean like now we got to start worrying about water levels and all that kind of stuff they got to start let water flowing downstream and release stuff and worried about all that i think we're at you know 200 percent of water for like the year 
uh, and here we're only in March. So <laughs> that's good. Uh, San Francisco will appreciate the extra water you're sending their way. <sighs> Something like that, man. Yeah. It's uh, water in the West is very, very different than uh, the rest of the country, but uh, sure. that's a topic for another time. So kind of without further ado, you guys have, uh, you've heard Kyle's bio uh, as of this recording. So uh, Kyle, why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself, you know, and how you got into construction and, and what you're doing today. And uh, let's go from there. Absolutely happy to. And, and uh, yeah, we definitely don't have any of that snow issue. I'm down here in Houston. So uh, I golfed with some clients yesterday. Uh, nice. So it's it's definitely a, a little bit warmer down here. It's I think it's probably gonna hit about 80, 80 83 today. So wow, um, you know we could use some of the water though. We we're never we uh could definitely handle it, just not too much because we flood pretty bad. But uh yeah, so I'll I'll, I'll dive in. Um, I run now help run a risk management family office. So I'm a director at Hotelling Insurance Services. And we are, when I say risk management family office, we handle all areas of insurance. And I work primarily, you know, I call it jeans and boots industry. So it's going to be a lot of the construction guys at the same time, people that got their hands dirty. And what we do, my specialty, and I'll get into why, is really in the exec comp, uh, life insurance, family succession planning, family dynamics, buy-sell planning things like that, how, how we unwind partnerships in that space. And then we've got a full team that does property and casualty for the businesses. We do personal lines, so home, auto, a lot of ranches down here, planes, boats, um, art collection, car collection, all those things. Then we've got a full PEO and health benefits division as well. And we just operate, I, I call it the one neck to choke for insurance. I am involved in all the different parts. And then I really just, you know, I'll bring in an expert in the in the areas that don't involve the life insurance, don't involve the family dynamics and family succession planning at that point. So it's it's uh it's good. We're bringing more of a privately held company approach back to the insurance market because it's getting you guys may be seeing it, maybe your clients see it or not, but they uh getting gobbled up by private equity and, and all the smaller firms get rolled up into bigger and bigger national ones and they care less and less about the small guys. Yeah. And quickly you have no, no humans to actually talk to. So I, I like that model where uh, I, I like you're saying to the one neck to choke. That's, that's a good one. Yeah. And the whole point, and we just want to have it. Um, we're, we're trying to work through the other advisors that they have. So we work directly with CPAs, wealth management advisors, attorneys, and work with their existing client relationships and help the clients understand that it's good for them. I view the CPA as my client. And I tell the client that. Tell them like, you're not technically my client, you're his client, but I have to do a great job for you because I work with 30 of his clients. So all my work has to stand the test of time, which means I'm never gonna have to apologize for anything I do which also means if it doesn't feel right, doesn't sound right, call me on it. Like, that's okay. Tell me. Because my industry is a lot of C students and snake oil salesmen. They just sell, sell, sell. And, and it's not good. So we're trying to bring a lot of that credibility back to it. And, and, you know, my background helps in that space. So 
Well, I'll be honest with you. It's nice to hear you say that, you know, um, candidly, I think you are the first insurance guy that we've ever had on the show. You know, we have a lot of, a lot of contractors, a lot of design consultants, um, folks in, in those lines of work. So, uh, we thought it'd be an interesting kind of spin on, on our normal, right? We're, we're trying to kind of broaden our reach a bit. Um, so a, it's, it's nice and refreshing to hear you say that to try and change the industry, which is what we're all about here too. Um, putting a better face on, on the blue collar world, on the construction industry in general. And, and, you know, the, the insurance folks are helping us to do that. So, uh, kudos to you for that. Um, so I guess let's, let's jump into how did you become a more of a construction geared insurance guy or insurance agent? Yeah. So my, my family, I grew up in a family business. Um, my family, it's Campbell industrial contractors in the Detroit area been around since 1947. Uh, so we're fourth generation now. Um, I helped run it for 10 years out of undergrad with my dad and my older brother and my younger brother worked for us too. And what we are is uh, we are heavy rigging and mechanical contracting. So I'm, I, I tell my clients all the time down here, say, you know, I would bet you any amount of money you want to bet that if your car or truck has been assembled in the U.S., it has at least one part that's run through at least one machine installed by my dad or my father so that we work in the metal finishing industry. So everything that makes all the fasteners and the clips and everything that's on the trucks and the rivets, those machines that make them, and then even more the ones that coat them and plate them. So plating for the erosion or corrosion resistance and things like that, we install all that equipment. Uh, oh, but we're a okay. non-union contractor in Detroit and in the Midwest. So we intentionally only do, you know, four million a year, but it's a great business. They do a great job managing margins, but it just you get a lot bigger than that. Union challenges really come in, and it's more a matter of them causing problems than than any. We can do the work, but you know, it, it, it's hard to make money when there's you got to deal with picket and the double gate system and all those things happening. So yeah. Yeah, let's, I'm sure you've, let's you've not, encountered let's not it. Forget the, yeah, let's not forget the giant blow-up rat. either. Exactly. I was just going to say the big-ass inflatable rat. But you know the best strategy for the union ones? Understand that those guys picketing are just doing a job and getting paid to be there. For sure. We, you know, a couple dozen donuts once a week, twice a week, to the guys picketing you, calling you an asshole, uh, goes a long way. I mean, it really does because they're like, yeah, you're just working, feeding your family too. So... Um, but we did that, but we, did, we reached a point, um, one I'll back up. Well, yeah, we reached a point where I just really outgrown what they needed me to do because we had such good relationships with the companies we worked with. But I just told my dad and my brother, I was like, if we try to expand it, it really jeopardizes your goals. And you guys have already hit them. I'm going to go to grad school. I went to grad school and got recruited down out of grad school, to turn around a division of a medical supply company down here in Houston. Did that for a year, hated corporate America, made the transition over to, yeah, it's, it's really hard to go from family business to corporate America. Like, don't try it. It's really, <laughs> if somebody that, you know, is just borderline dumb as a post, but is in a position of authority telling you what to do. And when you're seeing problems and you're like, I can fix this. They're like, yeah, but that's not your job. So, yeah, but we're just blowing money out the door for no reason. Let's fix it. And they're like, you gotta let that department handle it. And you're like, so we were oil and water at best. And so I left, I went into uh, 
more financial planning advising for business owners. And then my partner down here recruited me over three years ago, three and a half years ago to help run this model, which I loved. Once we, once we started talking about it, I said, this is the way we have to do it. And so that's really what ended up with me in insurance. And the reason I do a lot with construction is um, unfortunately I'm in a fourth generation family business that almost didn't make it. So when they transitioned from my grandparents to my dad, um, they did not have a buy-sell agreement. They did not have any life insurance. They had not really done any planning. It was all a handshake. Well, it's fine. My grandparents were, I'm going to guess 60, 65 years old at the time. Well, then they both have get diagnosed with like stage three lung cancer. So I'm 10 years old. My grandparents both passed away within about six months of each other. Um, but I know I only lost them because there was no buy-sell. The two younger brothers who had young kids, I understand why they felt disinherited because everything was going to my dad because everything was in the business, which you, any of your business owners can relate. That's where it is. Um, so they sued. Well, that lawsuit destroyed the family. So as a 10-year-old, I lost two grandparents, two aunts, two uncles, and nine cousins in six months. And we've wow. never been in the same room since. So the family dynamics destroyed. That's why I'm I'm passionate about, frankly, life insurance and family dynamics and succession planning because, you know, we're solving a one variable equation. Like what happens when you die? Well, cash at death is a pretty powerful, especially when a business is involved. Wow, that is uh, that's a, quite a story, man. That's a lot to deal with as a as a young kid, for sure. Yeah, you just don't know what's going on. Like, I have yeah. no control. I just lost all my cousins. Christmas is different now. Thanksgiving's different. Everything's different because you didn't do the paperwork, because you you didn't want to trust the life insurance guy, which I don't blame you. There's a lot of shysters in my industry. But, you know, it doesn't mean that there's not a place for it if you do it the right way. So I... Would you say that's the biggest risk factor that you see in in contractors these days is is not having a a written succession plan, not having a buy sell and in, in life insurance? I would think it is the definitely the most prevalent problem. So property and casualty, your general liability, commercial auto, like there's a lot of really skilled people, insurance people in that area. You know you have to have it. If you work with big construction firms, a big GC with a plant, whatever, they're going to basically dictate what you have to have. They tell you you have to have this to bid on this job. So you're forced into compliance. Nobody ever forces you to do a buy-sell. Nobody ever forces you to do life insurance. But the fact of the matter is, if you have a partner, at some point, you will no longer be partners. Hopefully, that's through success and you sell the business or success and you're able to retire or, or transition to the next generation, but it's going to happen 100%. The problem is those times when you don't plan for it. So think about it, Matt, are you married then? I am married, married with three kids. Business partner? Not anymore. So that's why this is interesting. I, I just, I just made it through that process. Uh, was he married? Uh, he was married. His wife uh, passed away a couple of years ago. Yeah. So it's, well, it's harder to transition knowing that part, but in general, if you're, if you think about the dynamic, so if you're business partners or somebody, do you ever really go home and rave about the decisions they make? <laughs> Absolutely oh. not. 
No, but you go home and be like, that dumbass. Like, he missed this on the takeoff. It's going to cost us 10 grand. Like, this is going to be crap. We are screwed in this area. Like, anything, any opinion you give to your spouse is generally the negative side of your business partner, whatever they've done. Because you're not going to go home like, oh, he's amazing. Like, I don't even know how he stayed in business today with all my mistakes. He completely covered for me. <laughs> like, you're never doing that. So you, in reality, you don't want to be partners with your partner's spouse. And your partner's spouse probably doesn't think as highly of you as maybe even your partner does. So that problem, that dynamics already, like there's just friction there already. Now you put it in there like, what business have you ever been to that holds more than 50% of their value available in cash? You don't. Right. Invest it and grow. So how the hell do you buy out a 50% owner if they're their estate if they die? And and how do you decide on evaluation? Like people miss this all the time. Like I'm I'm huge when I talk to attorneys, like give me a valuation metric, give me a formula in the in the document so that you guys can agree on what this is worth without having to fight forever. Like here is an ironclad formula. It's X times earnings. You know, I'll usually do like a blended formula, you know, three times if it's you know, kind of like a nine place formula, like three, two, one or six place, three, two, one. So earnings this year are worth three times, two times, yep. one time. And you just determine whatever that multiple ends up being and, and come up with a formula where it's like, it's, it's airtight. Like if I die today, I'm okay with my wife getting that amount. If you die today, you're okay with your wife getting that amount. Like that's the buyout amount. But yeah, that is. It's it's tough to not no not even close yeah well i mean it's most i know i, I don't remember the exact statistic but i think it's something like over 50 percent. i think it's probably over 70 percent of businesses don't have a written buy sell and of those like five or ten percent of them are actually funded with insurance to cover the issues yeah i, I mean i can tell you from personal experience when so i i bought into my company six years ago with a I mean, we, we formatted, formulated a buy-sell agreement, but it was loose, right? It was very, very loose. The valuation was non-existent. Um, and it was over the last the, the last five and a half years that we kind of formalized it more and more as we went. But it always amazed me when I was talking with new insurance agents or new attorneys and, and kind of telling them, yeah, you know, here's the, the general plan. And, you know, sometime around 22, 23, my partner's going to phase out, you know, go sail off in the sunset this, this, and this happens. And their first question is always, well, do you have a buy-sell agreement? And I said, well, yeah, of course we do. And and they were always shocked that we actually had one, which, mm -hmm. which shocked the hell out of me. Like, I don't know. I mean, in my mind, right, we're in contracting. Everything we do is documented on paper in some format. So it just made sense. That's not to say I knew what the hell I was doing. I didn't. Like, we just kind of, it was fly by night. Here's a document. We both signed it. And you know, we had life insurance policies um, when we started, uh, when I started, that would have covered the value of the company, like you said, to buy it out from my wife or from his wife. The problem we had and that I see with a lot of my my peers in the industry is we started growing rapidly and we never adjusted anything. So in today's dollars, those life insurance policies 
they'd be a toothpick underneath mm -hmm. the, you know, underneath the house with nothing. And so I, I guess maybe if we can, if you got any advice or how often, like how often are you reevaluating a company to make sure you have the right coverages, I guess. Well, so that that's a great question because on there, that's why we've, why we came up with this model of insurance. So if you look at it, the problem with life insurance guys, they call you, you don't always take the call because you don't necessarily want them selling you something, whatever it might be. It's, it's a relationship with friction already. Well, if I'm already handling your PNC for the business and I'm helping I do your personal lines to your home and auto umbrella and maybe we do the health insurance, I'm already talking to you all the time. So now yeah. it's a way to be like, hey, Matt, look, we looked at the PNC, we ran your numbers, revenues are, are double what they were two years ago. Do you want to take a look at the buy sell and make sure we've got the right type of coverage? Do we have the right life insurance? And then are we planning for success are we planning for when you're going to walk away do we have these things in place where you can buy the other person out because third-party sale is is frankly uh, few and far between and very rarely is it like here's a check and you get to walk away no there's a huge earn out it doesn't work right so all of those things that's why we went why we came up with this model was to look at it and then the challenge we really face um that where I think my background and my desire to work in the in the jeans and boots type of the marketplace is understanding um, it's a challenging one because you guys, you know what you know very well. Like you do construction guys to I, I feel like I can be generalistic because it's it's pretty damn accurate. Yeah. If you're a concrete guy, you know concrete inside and out. If you're a steel guy, you know fabrication, you know design, you know those things inside and out. You also know when you sit down with your insurance person or your CPA or your attorney that you're sitting down and everybody in the room knows that you likely don't know borderline squat about that category and the other person does. Well, the problem that comes into insurance is guys in my position seem to think that they need to walk away feeling like the smartest guy in the room. <laughs> because like I said it's a lot of C students and snake oil salesmen they haven't had the chance to be the smartest guy in the room when you're a C student all that often but they can sell so they build a great career um, they overcomplicate it and they make it harder on the contractors to understand it my goal when I sit down with them is I don't ever want you feeling like you walked away not understanding what we talked about. I'll use a lot of dumb analogies on there, just things, or I'll try to relate to their industry when you're looking at it and just being like, okay, if we're, you know, if, and that's what I tell is, okay, if we're letting life insurance and you're looking at it saying, okay, we value the business at a million dollars right now, let's get a $500,000 term on each other. I'm looking at guys say, I'm not trying to oversell you on life insurance. But let's think of this as like the foundation on a house. You're building the foundation right here, very narrow. You can only get so big. While we're doing this, let's take a look at doing a million or two million on each of you. Now we got a foundation that it can accommodate a $4 million valued company. Like I'm not saying it's going to be enough, but we probably don't need to do anything with it again until you're worth eight million or nine or 10 million because you can write your buy sell that okay if I die and we're worth eight million 
my side's 4 million. We've got 2 million of life insurance. Okay. My family gets 2 million right away. And here's the payout over time. Like they're, the family's happy because they got some cash. You just bought it. You own 75% of the company now. And now you have an agreement in place to buy out the other 25% over time. Now problems are solvable. You know, like we've got money there. So it's, but it, you got to get them to understand it's that foundation. And like, you're not going to build on it for a little while, but if you do, now we can build a much bigger, much taller home or a much taller building. So I try to use some analogies like that to, to help them. Cause if you get them to understand it in their language, then we can actually accomplish stuff. Yeah, for sure. I mean, <laughs> I'm a dumb carpenter by trade, right? I get in a room with, with my insurance guys and it's like, all right, I, I know generally what coverage I need for projects. You know, I know what I need to run the business, but all the rest of the stuff is is so far out there for most of us that, you know, like to your point, it's just, we know there's something there that we need, but I couldn't tell you what the hell it is. And, you know, the, the foundation example, I, you know, I get it right away. It makes sense to me. Well, and I look at it like the phrase dumb carpenter doesn't exist when I've got to redo my kitchen. It's a pretty smart person that I need, or I've got to do an addition on the house. Like I don't want a dumb carpenter. I want a good carpenter. Right, so right. the fact is like, you're so far from dumb. And that's what people fail to realize when you look at it, like, yeah, I'm good at what I do. It doesn't mean I'm good at like everything. It doesn't extrapolate out that like intelligence is based on your knowledge of insurance. Frankly, your my knowledge of insurance is not nearly as transferable as your knowledge as a carpenter. Like, if I'm stuck in the woods, knowledge of an indemnity policy is not going to help me. But an ability to know how to kind of build a structure to keep yourself, you know, a little bit safe from the weather, far more valuable. Like, I'm probably the dummy there. Luckily, my dad and my brother at least made me do some of that stuff. So, like, I can sort of hold my own, but... That we've got to flip that dynamic in construction. Like we're not dealing with dummies. We're dealing with people with that are smart and that have good knowledge. It's just we're putting them in a situation where they're not going to know what I know. But how do I help them at least understand what I know? For sure. And bourbon and helps too. Bourbon helps. Bourbon, yeah. bourbon helps a lot with how you establish those relationships too. Like it just doors open you know everything oh yeah no, this is what i really need help me yeah the, the cause of and solution to right <laughs> oh yeah exactly yeah the one thing that i always saw saw him on the design side um in traditional like any firms is mm -hmm. that by and large there was very little succession planning of any sort right who's gonna you know come up and take over the firm whether that's in a c-suite position whether that's in equity positions you know title or equity within the company and i think just that planning in general of who's taking over who's going to manage it who's running operations uh those conversations are some that just don't happen all that often through the industry right and i granted i worked in any firms that was where I very rarely saw that succession planning, you know, whether that was um, I worked in a company that was employee owned and we didn't really see it there. I mean, we saw it somewhat um, worked another uh, firm that was, you know, privately held and we had somewhat of a plan, but not really. And especially when the whole C-suite was going to retire in the next five years, it's like, 
you could kind of guess who's going to take it over, but there was no real um, tap or, you know, crowning of the next, you know, there was no prince in line if you were mm -hmm. uh, to take over the, the firm, right? Everybody had their inkling of who it was, but there was no planning, no training, no nothing. Um, nobody knew who was going to take it over. And I think <clears throat> that's probably, you know, along your lines, right? You need to have that, the buy sell for family owned companies. Um, but I think just when you go take a step back to succession planning of like, who's coming up the ranks, right? Who's going to take this ship over? Who's going to run it? You know, Matt, in your case, it was pretty clear, right? Like you came in as a partner and then, you know, hey, we're going to phase out your partner uh, to you running it, right? And that's not always clear, especially in some of the larger firms, like 100 person A&E firm, you know, all the principals have equity, but who's really running the ship and then who's going to take it over. And they may or may not have an equity position. So like equity and leadership gets a little cloudy for a lot of the A&E firms. I don't know if you've seen that either, Kyle, and, and what you've dealt with. Yeah, you definitely, I mean, there's there's two parts to the equation. There's definitely a a numerical and a dollar side of the deal. And then there's a leadership side. The leadership side is, is of course, harder to address with a product type approach. From the dollar side, I do one of the things that I've done with with clients is is help owners start to understand, okay, you don't necessarily want to sell the business. You know, if you're if you're a privately held company, let's say it's not an employee owned and, and maybe there's some equity to people, but you have a really, you know, dominant shareholder. That shareholder doesn't so much want to sell the business as they don't want to have to worry about a phone call on Christmas. They want to be able to go on vacation whenever they want. They want to have the ability to go on. Frankly, most small business owners I know, like they, I, I tell them like, you better have a really good hobby before you sell this company. If you've been doing it for a long time, because you don't know any way to act otherwise. My dad still works with my brother. I don't know what my dad's going to do when my brother shuts the company down or sells it. Um, Cause he's going to retire force my dad in retirement but like my dad is either not at home traveling or he's working he doesn't know anything else like he doesn't have a hobby that doesn't involve him being away from the office like he he doesn't have a hobby other than occasionally go shoot sporting clays and stuff but not enough that he's going to be gone every wednesday afternoon or at the golf course or whatever so business owners really they want the cash flow. So I'll talk to a business owner and say, okay, sir, you know, if you don't necessarily want to give away equity, but you're looking at it and saying the company made a million dollars bottom line last year. Great. Why don't we talk to your next three or four people in line and let's build, say, a restricted bonus plan. And we'll, I'll use life insurance in those tools, but I'll, I'll tell them, let's talk to your management team and, and explain, look, if I'm here working all the time, I know we'll make a million dollars a year and I, that puts a million in my pocket. I'm thrilled. Like that's life is good or half a million, whatever it is. I want that baseline money coming in. So what I'm going to do is everything we make above a million, I'm going to contribute. Let's say there's three of you. I'm going to put 39% of everything we make above a million into this restricted bonus plan for you. So you're going to get equity like an owner, but I'm not giving you equity yet. You're going to get profit sharing essentially, 
and I'm solidifying my million dollar annuity. Because what I really want to happen is all of a sudden this business is worth $3 million and I'm contributing 780,000 of the 3 million we made into this profit sharing for my three guys. They're starting to operate like an owner and I'm looking at it going, you know what guys, you get this thing to 10 million or 11 million. So you get to 11 million. I am thrilled to write that $3.9 million check. I mean, why wouldn't I be? I got my million base and I just made 6.1 million on the additional money you made for it. And the owners are all like, no, this is great. We each made, you know, we're, we're doing good. We each got another 1.3 million. This is a good deal. Like everybody's happy. And then you can put in the contract. If I sell it, depending on where it is, you might get a payout of X or Y or whatever it is. But now you also have three people making enough money driving profit, acting like owners, now they're in a position to start buying if they want to. So you, and it gives an owner ability to kind of step back and say, let me see what happens. These guys don't make anything if I don't get my million. They don't make any additional bonus. So let's let's see how they, they work while I'm gone on a two-week trip. Let's see how they do. Because frankly, at the end of the day, I think everybody in that equation wants the owner to be the hell somewhere other than the business. <laughs> like the other three are like, well, no, we're doing, you were making a million. We're up to 11 now. Like, I would love it if you're not here. I will write you your check. You know, like, so everybody's winning in those occasions. Just how do you help everybody see that it's a win across the board if we do this? So that brings up a good, a good topic then. How, how do you approach that? So, and, and you don't have to give us all your trade secrets by any means, but <clears throat> will you, Will you go into the company and, and sit down with, say, the leadership team and say, hey, guys, this is what we're rolling out. Here's what it means to you. Or do you stay with the owner and say, Mr. Owner, you need to go and tell them this, this and this and you handle it? No, I'll, I'll usually work as more of the middleman. I'll, I'll first sit down with the owner, figure out where their goals are, what they're doing. Ideally, bring in their wealth management person and their CPA and their attorney. Like, let's talk about what we're trying to do. Let's get their buy-in. They're on board and I'll tell them. And, and typically in that equation, I'm, I'm pushing to try to decide a generosity from the owner, helping them understand that, that if life is good now, all we want to do is solidify that you get that income every year as an annuity coming back to you. Well, now if you can give up, I mean, it, you look at it there, like it's still a great win for that owner. If it's a 45, 55 split, now you're looking at it saying, okay, I'm going to get 55% of these additional earnings away. Wow, we've got to get, we've got to get north of 10 million. Now they have, they have to 10x my company before they're making more money than I am. And then it's split three ways. But everybody wants to act like an owner then. So I'll go in once we've got that buy-in. So let's get the management team in here and let's start to have this discussion with them and explain like what you are giving giving this opportunity to them and it's generosity that they're receiving profits as if they're owners without the risk of equity. Equity is not non-risk. So they don't have that equity. And then you ideally say, okay, fine. If we go from 1 million to 4 million, now if I sell above 4 million guys, you get, you get some payout and it grows. And, and we come up with just ways to kind of be creative and figure out those those dynamics of what matters to everybody. There's a, I mean, 
almost always there's a solution that can be had. So when do you recommend doing that? Do you want, I mean, in best case scenario, do you want to get with the owner on day one, you know, once they open their doors, obviously they, they need to be making money, I assume, but you know, a lot of construction companies, especially they go through kind of that hockey stick curve where, mm -hmm. you know, they sweat and grind for so long. They may, there may not be a, a quote unquote leadership team in place. It may just be the one guy, right. For a very long yeah. time. And then all of a sudden people start coming on board. So when do you suggest that a construction company owner start having these conversations with someone like yourself? Well, that's where it falls back to our model. I, I can get involved with them at really any stage. It's hard to do it on startups because there's just not necessarily enough yeah. business risk, personal lines, type, health insurance type premium that I can, that, that, that you're in the market that where we have a lot of people. Like we start to, we do better as it gets bigger because those are the carriers in the space we're in every day. It's the way, like I try to help people understand in the personal line space. It's the easiest way. So you guys will know is that like, State Farm or Geico or some of those places, they'll design a product and every house fits in that product to a certain level. So they can turn things around really fast. They have to do that because let's say the house is $200,000. Well, that insurance agency um, might get paid 10% of the premium. So $200,000, let's say the premium is four grand, they get paid... 10% and then the agent gets like 20%. So there's like 80 bucks. Like I can't, I got to turn this quick or I might, maybe the numbers are bigger. I haven't worked in that captive spark part. So it's probably a bigger chunk being that they have the products, but either way, it's low, low margin, high volume. You come in, you're going into this product. When you get bigger and bigger in value, now I've got to go out to four and five different carriers because they are all different they're pricing it different based on where they are in the country what this looks like well now the dollars are bigger it's it's 10 grand in premium so that pays maybe two grand to the agency and i'll get 400 bucks okay well with my team they can do they've got some time to work on it so it's harder to help the startup market just frankly but as they start to grow you know i look at it and go about a five-man operation things start to matter because I can help with a PEO or a health insurance arm there. Um, we The PNC is probably getting bigger. Now, maybe if I can help all the people on personal lines, it starts to cover some of the time and we'll do the buy-sell. They're all low, low profit ones where you're really helping and building on what the, what's going forward, but it gives you a chance to build the relationships. So my big thing that is also why we really pushed that I view the referral source as my client. Because if I do it right, like if you come to me and say, hey, Kyle, I need you to help me with this. I need you to help me do all my business stuff. But then I've also got one of my people coming up. Like, can you take a look at what they're doing with, I just want to make sure they're covered right. And I, need, I know he needs life insurance. He's got young kids and will you help him there? Sure, because they're coming from you. I'm not chasing that work, but because it comes from you, it is, I'll do that. So that's how we build. That's where the model becomes important because when it's fragmented and you each do just the segment you do, well, then you're, when do you become big enough? You know, and like you need right. the help early on. We just can't help like super early. I mean, I can, I'll, I'll, 
I'm more likely to hop on a phone and phone call and tell you what to do versus helping you to execute it. Sure. Because we sure. just don't have, we don't play in that space. We're real small. Yeah. That makes sense. I mean, it's like anything, right? We, we look at a certain threshold of projects, right? And we won't look at something below that because it just doesn't, it's not efficient for us. It doesn't make sense. Yeah. Doesn't, yeah. And, then, and then somebody out there, that's what they do. Exactly. So it's better for the client as well to have that person that that's all they do. That's where you want it. Yeah. Well, good stuff, man. I um, Last question I really have. So talking about buy and sell agreements and, and actually creating these, is that document itself something that that you should create for, let's say, someone like me? Or is that something where you act more as my advisor and then I still have my my attorney draft you know, the language? Your attorney would still draft it. They've got to be an attorney. Like we don't, we don't give. So you set up the programming for it. Well, we'll talk through it. I'll give my input on what I've seen, what's successful, because the problem is attorneys, you know, especially if you're just starting out and you're doing a buy sell agreement, you're likely dealing with an attorney that, you know, but it's probably younger. You're not at necessarily partner level. You're not trying to play partner rates or it might be a solo practitioner. So it's, they're not bad but they just don't have the years of experience to necessarily have the ideas sure, and the creativity that goes into it. So you end up with something that's pretty vanilla and, and that's not bad from the start. Like that's, I'm not saying it is, and, but it is bad, but as you grow the complexity in the business and the assets and the relationship warrant some complexity in the documents. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And I think that's important to note too, guys, like is to, you know, review those documents, you know, whether that's on an annual basis or, um, you know, pick a cadence to do that and probably align with your growth trajectory. Right. So if you're growing pretty rapidly um, or if your relationship is deteriorating, probably one of the two uh, that you, you know, have that document reviewed more frequently um, so that you, you're in a good place if you have to execute it, right? And that's the purpose of these is they are somewhat living documents, right? And they they can be adjusted. Granted, everybody's got to sign off on them. But to to understand that as you move forward, you know, it's from what I'm hearing from Kyle and Matt, I'm sure your experience is the same in that having those documents reviewed more often, um, putting your leadership structure and succession planning uh, in place, you know, whether you decide to do a, um, equity <clears throat> or profit sharing for your company, you know, that's something that I think for all of us, we can have that conversation internally and be able to decide the path forward, uh, whether we're going to do that or not. Um, and really what the the goals are, right. This is all very personal, uh, for your company, for your firm, you know, and in the beginning, you know, uh, the pie is not very big typically to break up. So there's not much to worry about, but as you have more and more, um, you know, and then family gets involved or if there's a death or um, divorce or, you know, something else uh, catastrophic that happens, you know, emotions get involved, people get um, just emotional about it. And I think Kyle, that's, you know, some of your experience from, from your family. Yeah. It's, um, very big on it's better to do it earlier because when you're late it's too late um and when it's earlier you it's a lot easier to agree on how to split up nothing properly and fairly when you're not fighting so i'm a big proponent on that valuation metric 
make sure it's there. Because if you both agree on it, when it doesn't really matter, that's clear head. You're looking at it and just saying, okay, it also drives, you know, financial decisions going forward. Like, no, let's not necessarily spend that here. Or how do we do this? And then another one that I do encourage, um, and not a lot of people always take the advice. I don't necessarily understand why is some poison pill language in there. So Matt, let's say you and I or Dylan, let's say the three of us are partners and we have language in the buy sell that says if at any point one of the partners, um, let's say I go to Dylan and say, Dylan, I want to buy you out and I'm going to buy you out for, you know, $400,000. Well, you feel that the company's worth $1.5 million. Well, I'm trying to buy you out because I heard you had, you know, you pissed me off over something and I heard you're, you know, you're going through a divorce and it's about to get messy. I know you need cash. So like, I'm going to buy you at 400 instead of 500. I'll get a discount. But I encourage them to put poison pill language in there that says, if at any point someone makes a formal offer to buy the other somebody out, that other person can automatically buy those shares for one 120% of the offer. So what I mean is like, if I go to Dylan and say, I'm going to buy you out for 400 grand, you can turn around and go, yeah, you thought I was financially screwed, but I'll have the offer for 440 grand on your desk. And now I own two thirds of the company, Kyle, you're gone. And I can't. So what I, I say that because now it's kind of that prisoner's dilemma. I'm not coming to you with a lowball offer. I come to you with a lowball offer. I might have misread it and you turn around and buy me out for something. I got to come to you and be, okay, if it's really worth, you know, 1.5 million, I mean, I'm going to go in there. I'm going to offer like, I think 450, I get a 10% discount. And now I'm in a good buffer because if you come back, you're going to have to come back at, you know, 530. If I'm okay, I'm okay selling for 530 right now. I'll turn around and go do something else, but I'm also good buying at 450. You know, so some of those things, because it just any way we can eliminate the unnecessary bullshit in a relationship. It, it's going to be better for everybody, everybody overall, like, yeah, don't try to play a game. We're good to go. You know, that's a that's a great point, man. Great point to end on, too. You, you, you got to take the emotion out of it as much as you can. Right. And if you do that ahead of time, I can speak definitely from experience right once you wait and you try and do this shit down the road it just becomes infinitely harder because people start seeing dollar signs they start rethinking things and if it's not set in stone and, and stepped out and laid out for you it it can be and most likely will be a a, a bit of a nightmare at times an expensive nightmare too it sure as shit can be time time spent away from the business costs you money and it usually costs a lot of money with the professionals and she talked about not knowing their industries again. It's like, damn, why did I get a bill for that? <laughs> That's right, man. Yeah, it's no good. So, Hey, Kyle, uh, where can everybody find you? So easiest way, I mean, you can look up Hotelling Insurance Services. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn. Um, anybody that wants to reach out to me, they can email me directly. It's uh, K Campbell, C-A-M-P-B-E-L-L. -L. So my first initial and then the soup uh, at hgfin.net. So hotelinggroupfinancial.net, hgfin.net. 
Um, and I'm happy to help anybody. They want to talk, we'll talk. We'll, we'll do what we can to, to add value. Awesome, man. Do you operate outside of Texas? All over the country. Beautiful. License all 50 states. Um, we even do some international work uh, for the Michigan people. I'm up there visiting family usually a couple times a year. Well, work with supervisors up there too. Give me, give me a shout next time you're coming up to the snowy north, and we'll we'll grab a coffee or something. I can almost guarantee you won't be snowy when I'm up there. <laughs> unless it's unless it's Christmas, I love it in the summer. So, <laughs> so yes, we absolutely can do that. Kyle, I'm definitely, uh, not, definitely not coming January through March unless no, I have to be there. No, yeah, I'd go visit I, Dylan out there. I mean, that's that's a little different, a little prettier uh, country during the winter in the Sierra foothills than it is in the and the uh, Detroit slush monster that it becomes. Yeah, met. yeah. It, it's just gray. It's gray and yes. ugly. <laughs> exactly. Awesome in the summer, though. Yeah, for sure, man. Kyle, I, I appreciate you coming on, man. This was fun. Thanks, guys. I enjoyed it. Yeah, thanks, Kyle. And guys, make sure to share the show if you found some value in it. This is uh, one that we have not covered, but it's going to be super important for you, your firm, to, to take some time to think about it, right? Think about succession planning. Think about buy-sell agreements. Think about all those clauses. Think about um, you know insurance and are you covered um, in the case of you know something bad, right? Divorce, death, um, and or just bad relationship or something gone bad in the the business. So uh, if you have questions, make sure to reach out to Kyle and thank you all for listening. That's going to be this episode of the Construction Corner Podcast. Until next time. <laughs>